Hi guys, welcome to the Bookish Tarts Pod Snuggle. My name's Georgina Penny and my wonderful co-wench Real Beast has a treat for you this week. She has interviewed the gorgeous Stella Francis. So they went off on an adventure and they're going to tell you all about it. So Real and I will be back on back in form sometime soon hopefully Um, it's all my fault I've been gallivanting all over the place but for now um, please do go online and buy Rill's book Hell on Wheels please do uh, also check out my book The Barbershop Girl which is up for pre-order it will be out in January uh, the 3rd of next year enjoy though so today this is Real Beast and I'm talking to a good mate of mine from Canberra who's also a romance writer and her name is Stella. Hi Real. And um, Stella and I are blessed, very blessed because we are in not orange, which is what I want to say, but <laughs> Boronor. We were today earlier in Boronor, yeah. Boronor yeah. in New South Wales because we were attending the National Agricultural Field Day that was being held in Boronor. And um, we really enjoyed it. And um, I was there to do a little bit of research of rural stuff um, to, to get a bit of input for my next book, which will have another rural slant to it. And um, But I'm wondering already, usually Georgina and I wander all over the place, so that that's nothing new <laughs> to our listeners, but I thought I'd first I'd ask um, Stella a few questions about her writing, and then um, we might bang on for a bit about the, the glory that was the Agricultural Field Day awesome. in Boronor. Yeah. <laughs> so Stella, what sort of um, romance do you write? Okay, so I'm relatively new to writing romance, but a long-time reader. I feel like I'm on a radio talk show. Uh, long time, was it long-time listener, first-time caller? Um, uh, I have read them for years. And so for me, um, I decided in August of two, two and a bit years ago that I would, I could write this. I could write this. I could easily write this. So I started, and it's taken me a long time. So mine are contemporary romances, but they've got, they're a little bit different in that they are about military personnel, so men and or women, uh, that are current serving personnel or recently separated from uh, the Defence Force. But they're also set in a regional setting. So my books, the first of which um, uh, is in its sort of final stages of a draft that's about to go and be edited, is uh, set in just down the road from where we are actually in Wagga, in the Riverina. Yeah. So it's a... Uh, a Wagga romance. A Wagga romance. So it's, it's, it's got... It's, it hits a couple of different things. It hits that rural Australia because um, I've got a strong connection to, 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 to rural Australia and regional Australia, but also uh, it hits a military um, uh, genre as well. It's a bit racy. I think you'll agree we'll read some of my stuff. <laughs> but I'm a character-driven writer, so I really love exploring the characters and um, and making the characters jump off the page to the point where it's not just the characters in the book that the, that the book is primarily about. There's a sort of cast around them that you sort of get taken away with as well. So the plan is to have a series of these books. So you might need your own stall at the next yeah. field day. 
where you'll be flogging your Wagga romance. Well, I, I, I did think, and friends of mine have said, you should launch it. You should come down into Wagga and launch it because it is, you know, in, in the study there's a map on the wall that is Wagga. You know, I've spent a lot of time in Wagga, so I, I've never lived there, but I've spent a lot of time there, so it's intimate. But, yes, I could go even to Murrum Bateman Field Day or because these field days and Henty, which is one of the biggest in the country. So I was really interested to come to Boronor today, which is just outside of Orange. So it's the Orange Field Day, but it's at Boronor in a – on a purpose-built site, and I suppose the other the other reason that that excites me is that I'm an event manager in the other part of my life. So I go, ooh, purpose-built site. <laughs> oh, it's got even street names, and you know, and it's it's really well. Oh, there's a program. I love it. There's a program. So I feel very blessed to have had this opportunity to come to Boronor, and at the moment we're sitting at Canoundra, listening to the the thunder crash and the lightning. That's right. There's a thunderstorm happening, but we're not afraid of the consequences no. of leaving the laptop on and the <laughs> podcast on. We don't care. We're dangerous romance writers. No, we've got the wind. We've got. We've got. We can see it all. We can see the lightning happening. We've even got the you know the, the blinds open so that we can actually see the flashing of the sky, mm. which is quite huge. Yeah. Mm. Um, romance writers. They all love to take risks. Love to live that dangerously. Totally. Stella and I have been living on the edge ever since we've. Been here in Canoundra. Yeah. Because I'm from the city, I've been saying Canawindra, <laughs> and um, people are, of course, laughing at me. It's okay. The thing about Canoundra is, um, I don't. Th- I think they're just pleased you come. I don't think they. <laughs> I don't think they think. Well, you can't come unless you can say it properly, because yeah. nobody would say it properly. We did just have the most awesome meal oh, at the gorgeous. Royal Hotel. Royal Hotel. Um, in the main drag, where we had the restaurant to pretty ourselves, much to ourselves yeah. and were treated like royalty, um, which yeah. was pretty great. Royalty with gravy on the side. Oh, ch- we had steak and chips with gravy. Yeah, on, on, with a gravy boat. I've got to love a gravy boat. Oh. Not one of those metal, um, you know, teapot com- accompanying, you know, um, milk things, mm. but actual an actual gravy boat. It was no plate underneath it, but it was a gravy boat nonetheless. We could have done laps in that gravy <laughs> boat. And it was good too. Yeah. It was good gravy. It was good gravy. It was regional Australia gravy at its best. At its finest, yes. And you bought a nice wine. What was it? I had a Pinot Noir, which was a local one. I I think it was Winding Road or something. Anyway, we're going to – I'm dragging real back past a a winery. There's also a – what did you say? There's a um, uh, organic winery out here Organic winery. So we might – we're going to – we might head off the beaten track on our way back to the Berra tomorrow and see if we can't find these couple of wines. But it was a beautiful Pinot. I must spend too much time writing because I didn't know there was such a thing as organic wineries. Yeah, yeah. I think there are, and I think it's probably. I, I knew that I knew that there were a couple because I had a friend who only drank organic wine, mm. which is extremely limiting. I'm um, not that way inclined. Yeah, but I am interested to see if it's any good. Yeah, and if there's any taste difference. Yeah, absolutely. Or whether it has to be drunk earlier because my wines tend to sit for a while because I go through bursts of buying wine and then I don't drink any for ages and then. All of a sudden, I'm you know I'm going to a dinner or whatever, and I'm giving it away, or I'm having a glass of wine a night, maybe. So, just going back for a second, uh, what made you decide to write about military heroes mm. and and war veterans? Yeah. So these guys are um, the got the, the the men in particular, because the, the last book in the series will be about a female, a nurse, a military nurse. Um, I suppose I spend a lot of time. Uh, my day job is working primarily with Australian Defence Force personnel and I'm the daughter of um, uh, serving members, both my mother and my father. So it's very familiar to me. Um, I also think there's a huge amount of um, 
I don't want to use the word fodder, but there's a lot to explore. Mm. Um, I have some interest in things like post-traumatic stress disorder and traumatic brain injury. Um, the 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 hero the hero from the first book has um, post traumatic stress disorder, um, and it manifests as more of a guilt complex for actually surviving. Oh, survivor guilt. Yeah, yeah. survivor guilt. So he um, he's really struggling. He's back in in Australia, having spent some time in Afghanistan. So I'm interested in that. I've got a lot of mates that are current serving personnel or recently separated, mm. um, and you know the the books are in no way. Uh, not based on them. No, no. But you know, they are. I suppose that you know, you take experiences that I've had with them, conversations over the years, or conversations with the blokes and the women that I've worked with, um, and I do see a very. For some of those people, it's extremely difficult to them to live past um, an experience of being deployed. Mm. For their partners, it's also incredibly difficult. But for the defence personnel, I think too, male and female, it can at times be very difficult to find the right partner. You know, you're in a because other civilians might not understand. No, and well, yeah, no, I th- I, there, there's that. But there's also, you know, there's they're an itinerant population group. Mm. They're constantly moving. moving. So if you have a partner, it's you know, you're probably leaning towards having a partner that's also in the services because you'll both get packed up and moved. Um, otherwise, you're moving a civilian spouse whose career is. Constantly disrupted. Yeah, disrupted. So it's mm. a really difficult. And then you've got kids that come into the picture as well. So there's, I felt there was lots of stories there. I've also spent a great deal of time researching the lives of Australian Defence, but not just contemporary, but particularly World War One and World War Two. And I've been amazed reading diary excerpts and letters and those sorts of things of these incredible stories that no one would ever hear about. So, mm-hmm. you know, there's also a need for me to tell some non-romantic stories mm-hmm. at some point down the line. Yeah. So, can you think of any examples? Yeah, there's a um, with my day job. One of the things I used to do, I've changed jobs recently, was write speeches for um, for commemorative services. So I used to spend, you know, um, a couple of weeks in October every year in the in the Australian War Memorial, mm. reading letters and diaries of, in particular, World War One servicemen. So for anyone who's uh, overseas listener, the Australian War Memorial is in. Canberra, and I'm not going to talk too much about it because I'll say the wrong thing and make a dick of myself. <laughs> but it is it is vast, and I, I think yeah. it's probably the biggest. Yeah, um, in, in this country, anyway. Yeah. There are you know there are certainly um, small memorials and museums around Australia, and, and state based museums that have strong commemorative you know um, exhibitions and those sorts of things. But it is the national memorial, um, so it also has an archive, so people gift to them these letters and diaries of their loved ones, you know. And it's a real privilege to be able to go in. You research beforehand and then you go in and you've already called up stuff. It's like going to the National Library, any large collecting Mm -hmm. institution. So you are, in front of you, you are handling the words on a page that were written by somebody that's in a trench that's under fire, you know. Mm. So you're flipping through the pages of these diaries. And it can be very mundane. We went here, we did this, Mm. you know, there were nine of us, you know, in the section we did this, you know. It can be quite every day, but there are booby bursts in there that are brilliant prose describing, mm. you know, um, a battlefield that's exploding or what they came across when they were going along a road or, the, you know, the dead and that sort of stuff. And I think in the back of my mind for years I've had this Sunday with, you know, Sunday with Soldiers book in my mind, which is about taking some of these stories that are sitting in that archive that nobody will ever read mm. and, and talking about them, putting them in the book. Giving them life. Absolutely, mm. and because there's just so much there. Mm. So lately I, I came across one uh, probably lasting last year and I, and I haven't done anything with it, but it was, it's, 
it actually came off an oral archive, so it's off the Australian's War Archive, which is available to anybody online. Oh. And it's a World War One soldier talking to um, uh, an oral historian, mm-hmm. and he is talking about in the moments before going over the top of, or you know, a, a, the commencement of a, of a of a battle. And they'd had breakfast. It's totally normal. They'd had breakfast. And they're standing next to it, these two young men, and the barrage starts. And his friend falls against him and he describes, you know, he's talking about this to me and he fell, fell over me. So I pushed him back up, he says, and I said, get up, you had breakfast too this morning. But as he pushes him back up, he falls on the other side and he said, you know, he describes, not in huge detail, but enough for you to sort of catch yourself, the back of his head's missing, his Gone. back, all of that sort of stuff. And then he says these beautiful words. He says, he was my mate, what we had, we shared. Mm. And then he got. He talks a little bit more, and then you know, not long later, he says, "From the moment he got home, there's been a photo of that of that man, of his mate, that soldier, in his living room, and this was recorded in the late eighties. Yeah, you know, so that's some, you know, sixty to seventy years after yeah. after it happened. But even now, we can appreciate oh, yeah. the special sort of friendship. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But also the very unique experience a soldier mm. has, which I suppose there's part of me that wants to expose the Australian public or anybody else that might read it to the fact that what you say on telly is not all these people are. Mm. You know, their sons, their fathers, their brothers, they have horrific experiences. They fall in love, they fall out, they struggle. Mm. So there's part of, I'm not writing they're not nice stories or this one is not, an, you know, it's not a nice story. It takes a long time to get to a happy ever mm. after uh, a moment for these two, for these two people. Yeah. So there's, um, when you say they're not nice, you mean there's some, there's some real, I guess you could call it dark stuff. Absolutely. Because um, the hero is dealing with that survivor guilt. Yep. Um, yeah. And really struggling. And, um, and of course, then you set up the perfect fall of having the person that he's sort of, um, developing a relationship with is a, is a student psychologist who, of course, is seeing all of her lessons in this one person. But it's different to it's different falling in love with somebody that you know has got those issues. So they're exploring mm. some really complex mm. things. I just hope that I hit it right. You know, that's yeah. that's my concern. But I think so far with the readers that I've had read it, I'm there. I've just got some structural changes to make. Yeah. Hopefully by Christmas, New Year, I'll be good to send it off to an editor. <laughs> Um, it's funny how you mentioned, you know, that he resists this student psychologist, or yeah, so, yeah, psychologist, yeah, wanting to help him because, um, you know, I know that I've got a bit of a bee in my bonnet about <laughs> psychologists and psychiatrists, and it's like, get away from me. <laughs> <laughs> well, he says at one point, you know, don't use that psychologist mm. tone you know or, mm. you know don't psychoanalyze me mm. and she's not she's all she's done is asking a question mm. but he's also hypersensitive yeah. so then she's got to tiptoe around what she thinks is the right thing and she's constantly questioning mm. herself and not wanting to upset the apple cart yeah so they do take two steps forward one step back <laughs> for quite some time the old dance, the dance of love absolutely that's right um so my other question was why you decided to focus on wagga I real I know it, and mm. I and I don't know about you, but uh, I, I I'm a, as a big reader. I often I often feel like the person doesn't know the town they're writing about. Oh. You know, there's gaps, mm. necessary gaps in information, um, and it felt to me uh, I I wanted to write something that was real. I didn't want them to believe the character I created, but not where they were living or how they were mm. existing. So it felt 
I had to I had to put the landmarks in place. I had to know where they went shopping. I had to understand what their routine was, and I knew that about water, so it made it easier to write. Mm. And it's also the perfect spot. There's an army base, an air force base. Mm-hmm. There's a you know there's a hospital, university. So there's a plethora and strong wine making culture, which is fabulous. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the university out there, which gave me even more characters that I could build into yeah. uh, the community that I'm creating out there. I also wanted it strongly regional um and the landscape around Wagga out to towards um uh Albury Wodonga Urinquini the rock all of these places is just stunning you know it's a beautiful driving through it at sunset is very memorable for me so I can talk Mm. about it in a real sense rather than having to rely on solely on my imagination Mm. yeah um, and I have to admit, I didn't know anything about Wagga. <laughs> I didn't know they had the air bases and, and so forth. Um, I think I just imagined Wagga being this place in the middle of nowhere without anything. <laughs> no, it's, it is a sort of regional hub. You know, it's interesting because it. You know, I wouldn't say all. I wouldn't say all roads lead to Wagga, but certainly there's a there's a number of roads that go to you know go there. I've got a lot of friends that live there too, so mm. I spend a lot of time. So in the moments I need to remember. It's a two-and-a-half-hour trip at the most down the road from Canberra. Yeah. So I can go and spend a weekend, immerse myself back into the cafe I like to go to, sit in the library and watch people come and go and just get the rhythm of Wagga back when I need when I need it. Yeah. As opposed to trying, like, I can't get to London if I'm writing a Regency. I can't do those things to remind myself. Mm. And I want it to be grounded in reality. I want it. I sort of want the people who are going to go, oh, my God, I love those those, those muffins at <laughs> those that cafe too. I, oh, I love the way they make coffee there or, oh, I love this restaurant, you know. I lo- and, and, yes, Woolworths does get like that on a Sunday evening. <laughs> you know, I do. you want to have the sense of familiarity with a reader that they smile and go, oh, God, I know that. Hmm. That is real. Yeah, I have I've heard it said that, you know, setting can be another character in Absolutely. a book. And, um yeah, I love that sort of thing. I think it's fantastic. And if you're strong, if you're into the characters and, I, you know, and I've and there's been recently I've been, I sometimes feel like I've scraped the bottom of the barrel with some of my choices of reading material. I go, <laughs> oh, my God, this is so badly written. And I'm looking for the character. I'm looking for something to hang off, you know, why the page is turning. Mm. Um, and and if you've got the other character in the setting, mm. absolutely, then, then there is a there is a strong sense of the, because I think with that setting comes my community. Mm. Very, very easily. Yeah. Very easily. Without national cultural institutions and all the other things that people hate about Canberra. And that's the other thing. People, you know, if you don't like the town, Mm. then is your reader going to want to read about it? Mm. You know? Well, that's an interesting question because I've got a manuscript that I've just finished and it's got a rural setting, Mm. but it's a dark rural setting. And I drew on um, my memory of living in rural areas mm. and I, I probably shouldn't name the place but Stanthorpe. There <laughs> <laughs> you go, Stanthorpe. Fruit growing capital of Australia. Um, yeah, I had some dark memories, you know, especially around the, the types of masculinity that you mm. can find in the rural areas and I always think of that um, movie Wake in Fright <laughs> oh my God. if you want to look at the really dark <laughs> spectrum of um, stuff that yeah. can happen in you know, really isolated communities. Yeah. Um, yeah, so... Well, where there isn't an expansion, you know, the other thing about somewhere like Wagga is that because you've got you've got an itinerant population, you've got mm-hmm. people that come in to work at the, at, for the, to the RAF for two or three years, um, they're coming in to train at Kapuka at the Army Base for a year or, you know, two years, and then they're moving on. So you actually do get this sense of change. But mm-hmm. if you're in a 
small, like where sheltered is in a smaller town mm. where there isn't a sense of change, there's no renewal, yeah. then it just is this constant sort of cycle of it's just us mm. and I don't like you and you're dodgy mm. or there's an event that throws everybody and, you know. Well, I was intrigued when um, someone mentioned it to me how, um, you know, when drugs get into rural towns mm. and, you know, one of the problems with rural towns can be that there isn't a lot to do and um, so and then the problem was that bikers, which I guess are a form of organised crime if it's mm. a criminal bike organisation, they move in and take over yep. the drug trade such as, you know, methamphetamine and then um, the real problems start in, you know, what used to be these nice country towns. So I, I guess that idea fascinated me because, oh, yeah. you know, we grew up in Australia watching things like a country practice yes. where Wandon <laughs> Valley was this perfect, idyllic right. rural setting. Yep. Um, and there was no criminal within. The criminal came out from outside. You know? Yeah. And there wasn't anybody living in the community that was doing the wrong thing, really. Yeah. Um, Except Cookie and what's his name, they're always coming up with some sort of harebrained scheme. But yes, <laughs> and you know what? Our juvenile justice facilities and our prisons, particularly in rural areas, are full of kids that have a nice issue mm. for precisely the reasons that you're talking yeah. about, you know. Which is really sad. Absolutely terrible. Yeah. And it changes not only the, it changes the town, you know, it, it, it permeates schools and then it permeates the communities in ways because kids are missing or they're not there or they've perpetrated a crime or, mm. you know, the very nature of the community. Is, has changed and yeah. often it can't go back to, it'll never go back to what it was. Because mm. you actually visited a juvenile facility recently, mm. didn't you, as, yeah. a, as a bit of research? As a bit of research. And I've also had them, um, I've also worked in them in the past. Mm -hmm. So when I was a, an, an actor and a theatre director, I did take work into juvenile justice facilities um, in other states. But, yeah, I have and it's, I mean, they are amazing places and the teachers and the, and the staff that manage these places have do an incredible job. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a lot of negative press at the moment around um, juvenile justice facilities. I think that while the sorts of scenes we're seeing are horrific, um, they are not what happens in every institution that I, that as far as I'm aware. Mm -hmm. um, I think it can be incredibly difficult. Not every child in there is an actual angel. Mm. Um, they can be terribly awful, and I've got friends that are. Um, that are uh, juvenile justice staff and teachers in these facilities and the things that they have to deal with on a daily basis and the things that are done to them mm. on a daily basis are awful, absolutely mm. dreadful. So if I could say, caution anybody, if you are going to side without evidence on, with, with one of these things, you really need to think about there is another side to the story and, then, mm. of course, we're only going to see one thing when it comes to sort of media stuff, as yeah. horrific as that was. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So just going back to that theme of um, rural towns and how not everything is bright and sunny, um, I'm trying to think of, of books that have explored that, in particular romance novels, mm. but nothing is sort of coming immediately to mind. No, but, it, you know, you tend to. It's uh, it's bikers. You know, there's a mm. bike. We were talking in the car this morning about this biker genre. The MC. The MC. Romance, yeah. 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 Um, that tend to be about a biking, you know, a community of bikers, bikers that are running a criminal activity in a small town somewhere or they've mm. got a series of towns that they work across. Mm. Um, I don't know what their names are. I don't know. I've never been to them. I've ne certainly never read anything that's Australian. Mm. Um, but, 
we know that, based. We know that the TV series yeah. Sons of Anarchy Sons of is Anarchy. huge. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, and indeed, I I watched the first two or three seasons of it, but I couldn't keep going. You mm. know, I can't. I just can't watch them do undertake criminal activity and feel any sense mm. of. I I to. found it so misogynistic. Yeah, it's, it's I just wanted awful. to break something. Yeah. <laughs> and it, and it is. It's you know it's a, it's funny because I think it's a return to you know when I when I first started reading romance I was reading. Um, there was a second-hand bookshop at Belconnen and I used to come across off the bus and there was – and out the front they'd have a basket of $1 books. They must have been Silhouette Desires oh, or something, yeah. you know, red yeah. covers. Um, and, and, I, and the only reason I knew they were romance is because my nana had a set of three Mills and Boone medical ones mm-hmm. in the magazine rack in front of her bay window. And every time I went to Rocky, I'd pull them out and read them. <laughs> so then, you know, every Christmas holidays or, you know, whatever else. Oh, medical romance. Medical hey. <laughs> what are you thinking when you go to the doctor? <laughs> well, not that. Not with mine, I can tell you that. Um, but I think it's interesting. I, I used Once there was all these red books in there, but one day there was a, um, uh, uh, and I can't remember the name of the author, Elizabeth something, and she wrote she wrote Viking romances. Oh, um, and she wrote Scottish, you know, Highlander, Highlander sort yeah. of romances. And I think what the motorcycle genre is is a contemporary view of a clan, mm. a new a outsider. New, absolutely, or, yeah. yeah. So you've got this sense of we fight for our, you know, the, the, the clan mentality is we fight for what's ours, we fight mm. for our land. Yes, we rape, pillage and steal things. And <laughs> we but have, it's for the survival of the... And we have our own code of yeah, honour. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, yeah. there's all of that stuff. And I think, and I might be wrong, and people people going off at the moment listening to this is, what happens with these groups, with things like motorcycle clubs, um, be they criminal or not, are an attempt to fill lives with the same sorts of needs that we had when we were, you know, back uh, yeah, as Vikings, back as Vikings yeah. or back as, you know, we, we're looking for a sense of community. We're looking to protect ourselves. We're looking to procreate. We're looking to build, you know, somewhere to live, you know, oh. all these things, which is exactly the same thing. It's just that they don't, it's no longer driven by a need to, um, to you know, to survive and protect yourself from external influences like weather, you know, Mm. Uh, war on those sorts of things so we've recreated it yeah and I think they have a one of the things I can imagine readers liking about them is the simplicity of the code because you know you will be killed you and I (laughs) both you know work in the government so we know the hell that is bureaucracy and complicated and complex things and it's easy to understand why people long for this notion of you know the only things you have to worry about are whether you should try and touch so-and-so through his leathers <laughs> you know i reckon that's dead right and i think mm. at the end of the day as a reader too you don't want to read about bureaucracy no it's pure escapism you want to you know he went there he did this they did this together done you know there isn't layer upon layer about mm. of, of the red tape that we mm. all hate yeah. And the stuff that we have to do, we have to deal with day in, day out. So I think absolutely you're right. Yeah. Um, there's something alluring about a very basic yep. um, conflict, you know, rather than, you know, how do we improve <laughs> lives in, in blah, blah place. Um, something nice and simple like how can I resist my lust yeah. for... Cletus. Yeah. <laughs> you, keep saying, you said Cletus earlier. This, yeah. Today and I, you know, we've got a, I've got a um, colleague at work who's got the Bachelorette poster up. Mm-hmm. And my boss had taken it down 
and put it back up and covered one of the faces of one of the male bachelor guys that was looking, you know, go, to go out with or whatever they do on that show. Mm. And he, co- I don't know where he found this photo of somebody wasn't particularly attractive and wrote Cletus Queensland. <laughs> <laughs> and then he, anyway, it took us, you know, it took some of us days to work to out notice. What? what's going on. But it was Cletus, which is just it. Yeah, it's terrible a connotation. stereotypical yes. redneck yeah. name. But I and have it at the front of my mind because I've been reading Penny Reed's romance novels. Yeah, I'm, I'm intrigued. Um, yeah, I read Truth or Beard, which is obviously a play play upon Truth or Dare, um, and another one in that series. And I love them both. And I'm going to happily devour the rest of her books. In the next few days. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I will. I think um, uh, I've gone, I've made this, I've been reading everything I can I, uh, to try and, I think it's probably partly in my mind to help me with the edit of, the, of, my, of my novel is, is to have an understanding of where I fit in the genre. Mm. Um, uh, and I don't think I'm there yet, but I've been reading everything. Motorcycle romances, we were talking in the car this afternoon or this morning about um, the, the, the mafia, the Russian mafia romances, mm. the mo- you know, all of these very different ones, the, you know, uh, just trying to just trying to work out where I fit. Mm. But I've stumbled across Elizabeth Hoyt, who's a, I think it's Elizabeth Hoyt, she writes Regency romance, but they're a little bit more erotic than you mm. would normally read. Um, and I'm thoroughly enjoying them. <laughs> I've gone back to that sort of very early, not quite silhouette desire, not quite Scottish, you know, you know, Highlands romance, but this sort of in between thing that you know that I absolutely I devoured when I when I lived in South Australia and I was a theatre director, yeah. and I just loved the concept of these great big burly heroes. But these heroes in this book are not great big and burly. They're you know they're very different, and they're, they're each of them is is very very distinct. But she's created some strong women as well. Well, I, I loved um, when you were talking about the books, the idea of these. Um, you said that the heroes were vigilantes in yeah, a way, yeah, yeah, because yeah. they're rescuing, they're rescuing they're abused th- children essentially. Yeah, yeah. yeah, well, the first guy in the book, the first book, he is rescuing children. He runs a, he's inherited from his father this um this home for they I think they call them. Not wayward, but children and foundlings. You know, mm. it's an incredibly long title. This home has, and he, you know, they don't have a huge amount of money, so they're looking for benefactors. So it's not he, and then he goes out on the street at, at after dark and finds the children that are on their own or mm. in danger of being grabbed and put into a you know a sort of a terrible working situation, or mm. you know the children of a of a prostitute who's died of their, of syphilis or whatever. So what I'm. I, my history is a bit um, crap, let's say. So, were children being put to work in factories during that Regency they were, period? So, one of the one of the things they've got the kids doing in this place that they they call them lassie snatchers. They're snatched off the street and they and they make stockings. Oh. So they 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 actually physically make stockings, or they darn them with a logo, and they just work them in dark, awful conditions. Not not properly fed, no bed, you know all that sorts of things, and that's, mm. and and because they're in a part of London where nobody cares, mm. nobody cares. Mm. So he cares because he's got a you know he's got this home and he doesn't want that to happen. Mm. In the second book, or the third book, I think, um, and he doesn't have a title. That's the other thing. So he's got this home that badly you know is badly needed in this part of London. London badly needs to have it, this place for these children. Um, but they don't have the money to run it. Okay. So his, his sister ends up marrying up, which mm. gives her some money. But in the end, it's her sis, his sister, and she puts together a group of female friends, or female, not necessarily friends, 
who are titled, who do have access mm -hmm. to money. So the governance of this place, while he teaches in it, is actually done by these women. Mm. And I've, I don't just love it. So they're vigilantes in a way Absolutely. Too, because, because they're supporting. They're taking their pin money or the money that's been left to them because they may be, and this is the other reason I'm loving this book, a couple of these women are widows. Mm. So they are actually managing their own finances. And not only that, they're managing their own love lives. They're choosing to have lovers. They don't do it openly. It's, you know, they're not taking them everywhere. Mm. But they aren't coming, all of them, they're not coming to the bedroom inexperienced, mm. you know. So there's a real mix of characters. But I, that they are strongly dominated by women, mm. um, these books. But the men are really interesting. So the, the second guy, you know, they're vigilantes, but they're jumping roof to roof. They're mm. martial arts experts as opposed to experts with swords all the time, you know. So there's a, they're a really interesting makeup. Mm. The one I've just finished is a duke. Mm -hmm. So there are three of these guys, vigilantes, um, and the others know that the others exist, but they actually don't work together. They don't know each other so, personally. Yeah, so mm. this Harlequin guy that goes down to the street dresses up. The, you know, the dragoons are after him. The cop, the military police are after him. Oh, so he's in so disguise. He's in disguise, so he's yeah. not. He, he can't be seen. Yeah. So he goes and does different things. But they each have. They each do what they do for a different motivation, mm -hmm. which in the end feeds the story of their. You know how they meet and fall in love with okay. the person that they will marry. The women love it. Um. So going back to Regency, it's just—it's <laughs> marvelous. I can't believe I'm back at Regency, but I've like, you know, got nothing to do with military romance in regional settings. But well, it does a little bit because you mentioned briefly with the Regency that these women didn't experience freedom until after until they were widows. Mm. So they had to wait for their partners to die before yeah. they found freedom. Yeah. And I think earlier today we were talking about um, the impact of the war on um, women. Yeah. And you were talking about how. In you know some rural towns, there were you know swathes of women who never got never married, married, yeah, because yeah, yeah. their fiance fiancés died fighting overseas, yeah. or then they became, and then you know if it wasn't a fiance, they became carers for brothers that were maimed, or fathers that were maimed, mm. or uncles, or cousins, and were never provided with the opportunity to go and meet anybody else. Mm. So we had a generation of women post World War One that never married. Yeah. Um, and who later in life may have gone, and I'm thinking of Hilda Reese, um, Hilda Nichols, who, you know, trained as an artist, married a man that was in the army, they came back here, he was injured and then horribly died back here. But then, you know, she became a war artist and Australia yeah. has a number of um, a female war artists for, the, for World War One and World War Two, whose stories are just terribly tragic mm. but here in the end became they managed themselves out of yeah. that space and did amazing things they only gained that independence and creative license yeah because um of the loss yeah of, absolutely yeah well those women that you know during world war ii that took up jobs where they would never have normally worked and then so they did they tilled the land they built things in machinery sheds they you know they had they had an occupation for the entire war and then as soon as the war was over, you had to stop. They got the sack. You're gone. You're back yeah. at home in the kitchen. So you, I, I've often wondered how that felt, you know. Mm. You felt like you were you, you, you're contributing to the nation in another way. You were really rewarded by that. But now you've got to go back to... And you, you're told that you have to leave because that job, that someone else is more worthy of that yes. job. What a slap in the face. I know, it's terrible. Yeah. You know, and I, I don't know how they... There's some very good television series that explore it, particularly mm. I'm thinking of one where um, these women were used in the counterintelligence space. Mm. They were doing amazing analysis of, of information and data and listening to messages and those sorts of things. And at the end of the war, they had all these skills they didn't have before. They had the, uh, 
you know, they could, they were capable of doing that, highly intelligent, but it was channeled into this thing. And then all of a sudden, you go back and support your husband who's doing mm. similar work like that, but you can't do it. Yeah. Go home and bake. Yeah, go home and bake. Well, and this television series looks at these women that actually go home and solve problems. Mm. They solve murders. They solve, you know, they work together. Oh, okay. Yeah. That sounds great. But they really struggle because then there's this thing of saying, you've got to have, a, well, you, well, you now you've got to have children. Mm. Now you've got to do this, and you've got to put dinner on the table by this time. And get get with the reproductive yeah, that's exactly girls. right. Yeah. So you know you've got to be a breeder first and foremost. You're a breeder and a wife, and the rest of mm. it, you know, will you know, and, you can manage everything. And satisfaction just doesn't come into no, it. I don't, think, I don't know. <laughs> Not I, in the fifties and forties. No. 40s and, no absolutely. Yeah. Or I think it's probably a gross generalisation, but it's probably fairly accurate. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Sadly. Yeah. Um, well, luckily, you and I. Don't live in those times. No. And we'll be having a ball tomorrow <gasps> as we hit the wineries. Yeah. And we mustn't forget the fossil, the fossil. museum. So late, earlier this week I was excited. I was looking at, um, at, at Orange and the Field Day Online and I was having a look at, Ka- at Kanyandra, Kanawindra. <laughs> and I came across the Fish Fossil Museum. Fish of the Ages. Fish of the Ages. And I sent the link to Real, but actually she didn't. for some reason it didn't go through. So we drove into Canandra this afternoon from Orange and there it was, this sort of beacon at the, at the, at the, um, the bottom of the street here. So we drove to it and we were there at, what, 20 to 4 and we walked in and this amazing-looking, very this totally sort of stereotypical museum man. Curator. <laughs> Curator. Sort of, you know, he's got that sort of, he's got a sort of blonde, thinning, slowly receding was there, hairline. Was there a comb over? It was. Was there a comb of, over? I think he's inches away from the comb okay. over, inches away from it. So standing there and we sort of walked in and said, oh, we'd like to come. And he said, oh, well, there is an entry fee <laughs> and we're just about to close. So Rill and I are heading back tomorrow morning. We did, however, avail ourselves of the facilities. Yes. There. So we, um, and he, yeah, he was very kind to let us use those. So we shouldn't make jokes about the potential for Como. <laughs> Um, but that's right, it's the Age of Fishes Museum and um, there's a geological time walk, an audio tour guide, a gift shop. We'll be hitting that bitch hard. Um, fish fossils much older than dinosaurs. Nowhere else in the world can you see anything like this, bitches. There's a 36,000-year-old fish fossil. Yes. I read at the pub. Because 150 million years before dinosaurs were prancing around the earth um, was the age of the fishes. This was the Devonian period. I think, is that like Devonshire tea? I don't know. If it's Devonshire tea, I'll be really happy. Yeah. So anyway, so Canawindra. Oh, damn it again. Damn it. Anyway, in, 95, in 1956 they found this huge um, fossil site with all these thousands of bizarre, long, extinct fish, um, some with bony armour, some some fish with lungs. How freaky is that? Wow. If they have lungs, are they still fish? Are they fish? Anyway, and, and huge predators with um, crocodile-like jaws. So... Anyway, Stella and I are hoping that going, if we're, going. we're hoping that when we toddle into the gift shop, we'll be able to just buy one <laughs> of those. Yeah. Um, you know, can I have the huge predator with crocodile-like jaws, please? Ten dollars. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you are genuinely excited about the prospect of buying a fish fossil. I am, even if it's a really small one. <laughs> yeah. I will be inwardly peeing my pants with excitement. 
Yeah. We'll make sure it stays in wood. <laughs> That's right. I'll have my depends on, so everything will be fine. Um, yeah, so maybe next podcast um, yeah. I'll, I'll talk a little bit about what it was like to be at the age of Fisher's Museum and, you know, whether I'm going to try and insert that shit in a book. Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah, that's a really good idea. Yeah. A visit to the fish fossil. Ultimate cute meat. Our eyes met over the <laughs> 360 million years old. Fish fossil. Giant oh. fish fossil. I can see it. I think you could. Why not? Yeah. Well, if it's sitting here in the middle of New South Wales, yeah. the possibilities are endless. And if you were an ichthyologist. What's an ichthyologist? Someone who studies fish. Oh, right. Okay. Um, <laughs> Is that true? Yeah. I know this from Gary Larson cartoons. Ah. That's how I know most of my knowledge. Because it doesn't sound like real a real title, does it? Ichthyologist. It's like I C T H Y Yeah. Sounds like a person that knows things that are icky. (laughs) Yucky icky. Fish are kind of icky. Well I suppose not to an ichthyologist. No, 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 not to an ichthyologist. Imagine getting that excited about a fish. Anyway. So if you are an Australian, go get yourself to the Age of Fishes Museum or you can Google that shit, www.ageoffishes, one word, .org.au. I think that's enough for us. We're, we're, we're going to go to bed early. So we we're, are, yay. So we're ready for, for the, the museum yep. tomorrow at 10 a.m. Okay, so that's all we've got for you. Um, <laughs> did you enjoy that? I did. I really did. I hope we get Stella back sometime soon to have a chat. Um, yeah, so check Rill out on her social media, Twitter, Facebook. Check me out. Uh, she's at at Beast on Twitter. I'm at at Georgina Penny. Check out the Naughty Ninjas Not.net and basically, you know, stalk us nicely on the internet. That would be wonderful. Buy our books too. That would be even better. But otherwise, hopefully we'll have another episode for you soon. Um, but bye for now.